welcome. I'm Emily. I'm Gemma. Now, we all can agree that a good horror story is even more terrifying when it's based on a true account. So with that in mind, we're going to examine the Amityville horror. We've decided that this podcast should be split into two parts. I'm going to look at the murder of the DeFeo family and then Gemma's going to look into the haunting of the Lutz family, all of which took place at 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville. So what sparked the stories? In the early hours of November the 13th, 1974, 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. took a 35 caliber rifle and killed six members of his own family. Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr., his 18-year-old sister Dawn, his 13-year-old sister Alison, 12-year-old Mark and 9-year-old John Matthew. Ronald became known worldwide as a mass murderer and these murders would inspire one of the most well-known horrors of all time. Okay, so who was Ronald? Ronald DeFeo Jr. was born in 1951 and his childhood, while monetarily very comfortable, was less than perfect. His father was a domineering and abusive man, according to those around, and his mother seemed to shrink into the background and just allow it. Ronald began to rely on drugs and alcohol to cope, and in one of the beatings from his father, Ronald suffered a head injury, and research has proven that severe head injuries in childhood are a catalyst for violent and sociopathic behaviour later on in life. And childhood head injuries are also a common occurrence among serial killers and mass murderers. I didn't know that. Trust you to have a serial killer fact. Okay, so tell us about the day of the murders. By the age of 18, Ronald held a job at the family-owned auto dealership, but he rarely bothered to show up. So it wasn't unusual that the day of the murders, he decided to leave work at noon. Instead of going home, he met with friends at a bar and continuously called his house, but complained to anyone that would listen that he couldn't get hold of anyone. Eventually, he left to head home, but at six o'clock, he came rushing back to the bar yelling, you've got to help me, I think my mother and father are shot. Some of the patrons followed him back to the house on Ocean Avenue and they then became witnesses to the horrifying scene within. All six of his family members were found in their beds laying on their stomachs and they appeared to have been shot with a high-powered rifle. Time of death later confirmed that the family were killed at 3.15am and the police were unable to find any sign of a struggle and there's no evidence that the family had been drugged and toxicology reports confirm this. No neighbours had reported hearing any gunshots in the house, which was also strange and to this day remains an unknown. Police first took Ronald to the police station for his own protection as they were worried that he may have been the next target after he told them a story which included threats from the mob. He claimed that mob hitman Louis Fellaini killed, had killed his family and made him watch. Ronald's great uncle was in fact rumoured to have links with the mafia, which made the story a little bit more believable. Now, while Ronald was spinning his story at the police station, detectives at the house were finding disturbing clues that showed that Ronald may have actually killed his own, his own family. Boxes of ammunition that matched the bullets used in the murders were found in his room. And after speaking to family friends, it became clear that the weapon used most likely came from within the house. Police asked Ronald for an alibi and he told them about being at work and then at the bar. But this alibi soon began to crumble as police noted that the family had been dead before six o'clock in the morning. DeFeo frantically changed his story, as he would several more times throughout the Amityville murder investigation, until he finally broke down telling police, once I started, I just couldn't stop. Ronald's trial began on October the 14th, 1975, almost a year after the killings. Odd how they were all found on their stomach. Like they'd been placed there. Yeah, I mean, did the gun have a silencer? 
No, they found no evidence that it had a silencer. Very odd. You'd think somebody would have fought back. So what happened at the trial? So Ronald's attorney, William Weber, mounted an insanity plea, stating that the defendant heard voices that told him to kill his family. Now, this was backed up by his medical records. As a teenager, he'd been sent to a psychologist to try and resolve his anger issues. And when he was 18, Ronald threatened his father with a gun. He even pulled the trigger, but nothing happened. And just a year before the murders, a psychiatrist warned Ronald Sr. that one day his son would kill him. Now, the flourish to his story about his friend Richard Romando may have helped with this insanity plea, as there's no evidence that he ever existed. And Richard, according to Ronald, helped to clean up the murder scene, helping him hide the gun, ammunition and bloody clothes, supposedly touching the items, but no other fingerprints were found on them. Now, the stories that he was spinning were ever-changing. He did confess to the police that he'd found out his mother was having an affair and he didn't like his father because he felt that his father was making him work too hard. Now, police came to believe that he shot his parents first and then he killed his siblings as a way to get rid of witnesses. At his trial, Ronald's defence claimed that he was so far into addiction with both heroin and other drugs that he needed money and he believed that his father had hidden cash in a cash box on the property and he was searching for the money when his family disturbed him and then he killed them all. But no stash of hidden money was ever found at the property. Also, surely if they disturbed him, they wouldn't be laying face down in their beds? No, not if it adds up. Okay, so you said the stories kept changing? I did. So a version of the story that he gave to the media in 1986 claimed that his sister Dawn had killed their father and then their distraught mother had killed all the siblings. Now, in this story, Ronald said that he was only guilty of killing his mother. The story of Dawn is a little confusing with its own variations. Now, Dawn's bedroom was on the third floor of the house. Now, if she was in her room at the time of the murders, she would have heard the shots that killed her family, but she seems to have made no attempt to run, which seemed really suspicious to investigators. Based on crime scene, crime scene evidence, it appears that Dawn was actually killed somewhere else and then her body was staged to look like her siblings. Now, a reporter who had been covering the story continuously mentioned that Ronald had told investigators that a hooded figure had given him the gun and told him to kill his family. And one theory even suggests that Dawn and Ronald planned the murders together as their parents wouldn't allow Dawn to move in with her boyfriend. And this investigator felt that because Ronald was so far into drugs, he could have quite easily mistaken this hooded figure of Dawn being something that he was seeing within a drug-fueled vision. There's also some darker theories that claim that Dawn and Ronald were in, in, in an incestuous relationship and the autopsy on Dawn's body showed that she had had sexual intercourse the day of the murders but of course this could have been with her boyfriend. So where did the demons come into this? Well a priest that saw Ronald when he was on the witness stand claimed that he believed that he'd been possessed and it was his confession on the stand in the courtroom that began the rumours of supernaturals going on in the house. The defence called for a parapsychologist to examine Ronald who concluded that he had in fact been possessed by an angry Native American spirit. The real stories of the hauntings come from the next family that moved into 112 Ocean Avenue. After the murders, the house was put up for sale, and despite its reduced asking price, 
due to the grisly crime that had taken place there, it sat empty for almost a year. That was until the Lutz family came along. Their experience in the house has become subject of multiple books and two Hollywood movies. So who were the Lutz family? George and Kathy Lutz were newlyweds and had spent some time looking for the perfect house that would become home to them and Kathy's three children, Daniel, George and Missy, from a previous relationship. When they first viewed the house, they were captivated by it and despite it being over their budget, they made an offer. Did they know about the murders when they were looking at it? So no, not initially, but when they were informed, they discussed it as a family and had no reservations about the house. They paid 88000 and added $400 for the DeFeo furniture, which remained in the house. The family moved in on the 18th of December, 1975, but their dream home would quickly become a nightmare and the family would flee in terror just 28 days later, never to return. So how soon after they moved in did things start happening? Well, according to George Lutz, the very day they moved in, strange things began to happen. The first occurrence came just hours after they arrived, when their dog Harry, a black Labrador, tried to hang itself by jumping over a fence. Um, As the chain of its leash was too short, it began to choke. The same day, a priest arrived to bless the house. Now, there are differing versions as to why the priest was there. Some believe Kathy requested it. Others suggest uh, a friend of the Lutzes who knew the history of the house suggested they have it blessed. Either way, a priest arrived and in an interview in 1979, the priest recalled, quote, I was blessing the sewing room. It was cold. It was really cold in there. Like, I'm like, well, gee, this is peculiar because it was a lovely day out and it was winter, yes, but that didn't account for that kind of coldness. I was also sprinkling holy water and I heard a rather deep voice behind me saying, get out. It seemed so directed towards me that I was really quite startled. I felt a slap, I felt a slap at one point on the face. I felt somebody slap me and there was nobody there. The same interview, he claimed that he discovered unexplained blisters festering on his hand and that he advised the family not to use the upstairs bedroom. And this all happened on their first day? Yeah. Well, I wouldn't have been staying there. Oh, yeah. as soon as somebody hurt my dog, I would have been gone. Yeah. So what happens next? George, who was active, calm and healthy when the family moved in, quickly became lethargic, lost weight and began ignoring his personal hygiene. He became quick to anger and he said he could never get warm. So he was constantly chopping wood and then having fires lit in the house. And when I say fires lit in the house, I mean like in a fireplace. He wasn't just randomly setting fire to rooms. George was also woken up at 3.15 each morning, which, as you just told us, was the exact time the murders took place. And one night, George saw his daughter, Missy, aged five, standing in the window with the outline of a pig with red eyes standing behind her. When he ran inside, she was sound asleep. And soon after this, Missy began to talk about a new friend she had made, a pig named Jodie. One night... George looked down at his wife, Kathy, who was sleeping and saw that her face had aged and that she now resembled that of a 90-year-old woman. This was something that happened on several occasions and was witnessed by Kathy when she looked into the mirror and even by her mother. Doors were ripped off the hinges. Rooms were filled with flies, even in winter. There was cloven hoof prints in the snow outside the house, green slime oozing from the walls. 
They found a secret room in the basement that was not on their house's original blueprint, and this room was painted blood red and only big enough for two people to sit intimately close. They said it gave off an odour and that the family dog wouldn't go into it. George said of his attempt to take the dog in there, quote, he just wouldn't go in. He backed away. It was the only time I can ever record him cowering from something. One night, George heard the sound of a band playing downstairs, but when he went to investigate, there was no one there. However, the rug had been rolled up and the furniture moved to the side as if somebody had made room for dancing. Kathy felt she was embraced by someone and she felt that this was a woman. They would hear screams and footsteps at night and the china in the toilets would turn black. Windows slammed shut on one occasion onto the hand of one of the children. Did they do anything about it? Family tried to live with it, but on January the 14th, 1976, they fled from the house and never returned. What actually happened is a mystery and the family have refused to go into detail. But George Lutz recounted, quote, We didn't get up to leave that morning. You need to understand that. This was our house. We lived here. When we left, we didn't know we weren't coming back. We didn't know that what we were leaving behind, we would never see again. So they've left the creepy house. What happens next? So they moved in with Kathy's mother and George reached out for help in trying to understand what was happening in his house. He reached out to Stephen Kaplan, the executive director of the Parapsychology Institute of America, and asked if he and his team would investigate the house. Kaplan later recalled in his book, The Amityville Horror Conspiracy, that, quote, this initial conversation immediately aroused suspicion as to the validity of George Lutz's claim that the house was haunted. When Lutz asked what his fee was, Kaplan told him, quote, they did not charge for the investigation, and if the story was a hoax, the public will know. Shortly after this, Lutz called and cancelled the investigation, claiming he did not want publicity. However, the same day, the Lutzes held a press conference. For their part, George and Kathleen claimed that Kaplan's credentials did not check out and that his claim of being a vampirologist made them leery of, of him having any involvement with the case. So it's kind of Kaplan saying once he told them if it was a, a hoax, he would expose them. George Lutz backed out and the Lutzes were saying this guy's a crackpot. We didn't want him involved. So there's two differing views on why the investigation then didn't happen. What happened at the press conference? So interestingly enough, the press conference was held in the office of William Weber, the very same lawyer who had defended Ronald DeFeo. In the press conference, George and Kathleen told their story, and this was picked up by a local TV station, and they set up an investigation which consisted of mediums, parapsychologists, journalists, and Ed and Lorraine Warren. And what happened during their investigation? On the 9th of March, 1976, George met them at the edge of the property because he didn't want to go into the house, let alone onto the property. Different members of the team had differing experience. For example, soon after they entered, a cameraman doubled over, clutching his chest where he felt stabbing pains, and others began to act strangely. Quite what was meant by that is unclear. Ed Warren said he was thrown back as he led the way down to the cellar and Lorraine Warren claimed the house was infested with non-human spirits and that she felt something evil from the centre of the earth. She later called it one of the most haunted homes in the world. Mary Downey, a medium, recalled, quote, feelings of overwhelming sadness and the psychic remnants of the murder, which you might expect. 
She further claimed that at one point she felt as if the house was surrounded by monk-like figures in white hoods who were evil. And so she flicked some holy water and this made the sound like water on a hot stove. After this, for a while at least, she claimed the house settled. Jean Campbell, a photographer who worked as part of the Warrens team, captured the image, or the now famous image, of a young boy with glowing white eyes in a photograph, who they claimed was the spirit of John DeFeo. I think most people have seen the picture. If not, search it out online because it is creepy. It is really creepy. Others, however, have claimed that it was an image of one of the investigators named Paul Bartz and that the white eyes were caused by the infrared camera film. Not every member of the team had any experiences, including a reporter whose name I was unable to find. She claimed she neither saw nor felt anything other than the reactions of those around her. Was this the only investigation that happened? No, the case became a sensation. In January 1977, Dr Hans Hosier and a medium named Ethel visited the house and upon their arrival it was claimed Ethel grew an Adam's apple and took on the features of a native Indian chief who claimed the house was built upon Indian burial burial grounds and that he was unhappy about being disturbed. So was it true? Well here's where things get complicated. Remember the lawyer William Webber? Well he claimed that he and the Lutz family had created the story over many bottles of wine In this conversation, he said he showed them crime scene pictures and helped them create the story. For example, uh, fingerprint powder at the time was green, and this green powder became the idea for green slime on the walls. There were flies in certain rooms, but we've got to remember that the the DeFeo family remained in the house for 48 hours with the doors and windows closed and the heating on, so flies were a given. There was a contract for the book, and the profits for this were to be divided between Weber, the Lutzes, and the author, Paul Hoffman. However, the Lutz family pulled out because they felt Weber was, quote, trying to trap them in an unfavourable contract. As such, Lutz and the Webbers sued each other, leading some to suggest that he made up the story about them creating the haunting to discredit them. Also, uh, you remember me saying that the Lutzes claimed doors were torn off their hinges? Well, the people who moved in after them found the house to be in a perfect state of repair. There was this story that the window had closed on the hands of one of the Lutz's uh, children. However, initially, George said he had taken his son to hospital because of the injury. But when he was asked to prove that, he backtracked and said they just bandaged the hand at home. Furthermore, investigators found that by stepping on certain floorboards in the room, the window would go up and down because it was not fitted correctly. And we remember Jodie the pig. Well, this was thought to be a large domestic cat which belonged to one of the neighbours who liked to look in the windows. There is a book about it, though. Yes, the Amityville Horror was written by Jay Anson and the book was hugely successful and is very creepy. Now, Anson didn't experience anything supernatural whilst writing the book, but gave out early copies to three people and they suffered calamities. The first had his truck catch light. The next had his truck go into the river, but the manuscript, which was in the boot, was dry despite only being in a paper envelope. And one who had the first chapters died in a house fire the night they received them, but the manuscript was found undamaged. Okay, so they faked it. I mean, there's no conclusive proof that they made the story up. They certainly didn't have a history of doing that kind of thing. And although they received some money from the book and the movies, it it wasn't an earth-shattering amount. 
1979, George and Kathleen both took and passed polygraph tests. I mean, if we want to be, if we want to look at this logically and say ghosts don't exist, therefore there could have been no haunting, some have suggested that they could have suffered some kind of group delusion or, or hysteria. Like, so they, they knew the history of the house and took on a life of its own. And, and you know how I always say that fear can be contagious. Yeah. So maybe one of them was freaked out by something and then, then it passed on to everyone and then it become this like bubble of fear. Yeah. So does someone live in the house now? Yeah, since Lunt's family moved out, there have been four owners, or four to date. None of them have reported paranormal activity, although the house was renovated and the address changed to stop people visiting it because it kind of became a, a, a shrine or a, a mecca and people would, like neighbours complained about the fact their lawns were getting trampled because people were going and ripping up bits of grass or yanking off bits of windowsill from the house because they wanted some kind of relic for the lack of a better term from this haunted house so what happened to the family george and kathleen went on to have two children together but sadly divorced in 1988 they remained friends and throughout their lives maintained their account was true kathleen died in 2004 and george died in 2006 what are your thoughts i mean i've watched things on like like a couple of documentaries on the the hauntings and I remember watching one of them and they had that journalist from like both sides kind of arguing it out. And one of them argued that the Lutz Lutz family needed the money because they were defaulting on their house. But as the other journalist said, they were there for 28 days. How do you default within a month? You you can't. It's not physically possible because you haven't paid anything yet. Just to add to that, the house was more expensive than the Lutzes could afford to start with. And then George's business was suffering. So there are definitely those who think they did it all for money. Yeah, but like you said, it's not a groundbreaking amount that they got paid. No, and it seems uh, a risky move because what if it hadn't worked? What if nobody had cared? They yeah. still have to pay for the house and they would have traumatised their children. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I mean, places have an atmosphere. Like, uh, not ghosts, not demons, not, not anything supernatural, but places have an atmosphere. We've all walked into somewhere and gone, oh, I don't like it in here. Yeah. Or... You know, like you walk into somewhere and it's warm and you're like, oh, I'm relaxed here. So six people were murdered and the dad was violent and it had not been a happy house. No. That, that's going to have been absorbed into the atmosphere. I'm not talking about ghosts or imprints. I'm just, no. You can understand how going into that environment, having been told about the six murders, having had a priest come in and say oh it's a bit creepy upstairs and the priest was later discredited yeah you can understand how that's already put you on edge whether you want to accept it or not yeah the dog jumped over the fence and tried to hang itself with the leaf well that could just be a dog being an idiot and not realizing that his leash wouldn't realize it was a new house yeah but also why is it trying to jump anyway dogs are silly dogs maybe it saw a cat we know there were cats running around the neighborhood So you could say, okay, that was just a dog being a dog. You chalk it up to something else because you're already slightly on edge. Yeah. They're waking up at 3.15 every morning. Okay, maybe that was just, you just woke up and you associate the time with it. The green slime on the wall, again, we know they used green fingerprint powder. 
could it just have been that and it's left a residue and your brain's gone all creepy? Especially if you see it like out the corner of your eye. Yeah. Like it's dark. You, everyone sees things out the corner of their eye and... Oh, absolutely. I, I've seen shadows oh. before and like jumped. I've seen my own shadow and done that to myself. Yeah. And it was a new house. Me. You know, the creaking of the floorboards and things. All, all houses settle. Like we've, yeah. we've all stayed somewhere new and at three o'clock in the morning you think oh my god there's a an army of demons coming for me but it's just the floorboards settling or the heating or something yeah or the pipes yeah i think the thing is i don't want to believe that they made it all up no not not out of malicious intent anyway yeah and it's so. important to remember that yes the warrens were involved and they're probably the biggest names in in paranormal investigations but there are some who believe the Warrens to be frauds. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that I believe that. I'm just saying it wouldn't be fair so. It must be true because Ed and Lorraine Warren were there. Yeah. When there are others that would say that it wasn't true for the exact same reason. Yeah. I mean, you've got quotes of people, I suppose, saying that during their investigation, something happened or nothing happened. It's, you know, you've got people on both sides of the fence saying that nothing happened or something happened. You've got people saying that I mean, why why did nothing really happen before the murders and saying that, well, whatever spirit it was needed a certain type of person and that, you know, DeFeo was that kind of person that was slightly unhinged and um, George Lutz was also the same kind of person because um, when they spoke to people, they said that he was quite quite quick to anger and quite violent even before they moved into the house even though he says that he wasn't, there's yeah. a fact that he was, and that he was that kind of person, and then the house would have only made that more apparent, and maybe made his wife more reserved, like the same with the family before. Yeah, definitely. I think that probably played quite a large part. And George Lutz didn't do himself any favours by changing his story by by saying i've got evidence and then not having evidence yeah you know like like i said when the window supposedly came down on one of the son's hands george initially said uh it was so bad we had to take him to the hospital when an investigator said okay well we'll get the reports from the hospital that will verify that he said oh no no we bandaged it at home yeah it, it's the trouble with this is nobody involved in saying it was haunted is is a hundred percent credible yeah and that because it got murky with people suing each other it you know that it became even more difficult to work out the truth yeah it's interesting to note that nobody else has moved in has noted anything spooky happening yeah I mean, whether they have and they're just not saying anything because they don't want the publicity or whether they just so resolutely do not believe in anything. Oh, well, yeah. You know, demons are tap dancing on the landing and they're just like, meh. Oh, that's Please me pay having... the mortgage. Yeah, that's me eating cheese before bed again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not being funny. It was obviously a money spinner. No, the Lutzes didn't get an earth-shattering amount, but they got enough. Yeah. So you'd think... You know, part of me thinks, well, why did the next people who moved in not think, oh, we could uh, we could capitalise on this by saying a few spooky things has happened? Mm. 
it's interesting to notice that it stopped being said about. Yeah, I mean, you would think that whoever bought the house next would probably have had some kind of interest in paranormal goings mm. on because that would have been perfect house for them to then move into. But if they then yeah. don't say anything, it kind of tells you the kind of people that are actually moving into the house. They just want to live there. They don't want to be bothered. I mean, they had to change the address because, like I said, people would turn up. Yeah. So it's certainly interesting. I don't think there's ever going to be an answer. Those that believe in no. ghosts will say it was haunted and those that don't will say it wasn't. Yeah, I don't know. It's a very strange case. I, I think the like... biggest piece of evidence is the photograph. We're going to try and add a link to the photograph in the description box of the podcast. Yeah. Because that seems to be the most solid piece of evidence people hold up. And it is creepy. So But then creepy. we've... We've all taken pictures of somebody and their eyes look funny because of the light. Yeah, but it's red eye. It's not like the same as what this picture is. It's not this really strange glowing. True, but they were using infrared film, which is uh, why they said it made them glow white. I don't know. It seems really odd that it would be... I can imagine like was... them being really bright, but not in the way that they are. And it does very much look like a child peeking around the doorway. Yeah, the height. There's no way that a man is crouching at that level. And is that size? The size of the person as well is a child. Mm. It's not It's not like a skinny person that's kneeling on the floor. It's a not one person, human. And not one person involved in the investigation mentioned a child being there. Now, you'd, no. be, you'd think that the sceptics that were there were someone that was just Bob who brought his son, John. Yeah. Like I said, I think a lot of people take issue with it because a everybody involved in saying it was haunted has lied or twisted things you know and b it's received the hollywood treatment now yeah and i always think that once something receives the hollywood treatment and becomes exaggerated the streamlined facts don't seem that interesting yeah if that makes sense yeah Saying that, I'm not sure I would buy it. No, 100% not. Mm-mm, not going. <laughs> not taking that risk. I do think it's interesting that the victims were found on their stomach. Nobody fought back. There was no sign of uh, a struggle. No, no. The neighbours didn't hear any gunshots. That's very peculiar. I mean, the only one that seems to have fought back is Dawn. There's evidence that she did actually fight back, and it was discovered a little bit later. So she had gunpowder residue on her clothes, which came from her trying to struggle with the rifle. And in one of his retellings, he did actually say that she grabbed it and he threw her on the bed and then shot her. And that's why she was on the front because they were struggling with it and he threw her on the bed. But then... Is there not also a school of thought that says she did some of the killings? Yes, that's one of the schools of thoughts that she was the one that actually shot them all or just their dad or it comes in lots of combinations but um there's evidence elsewhere or there was evidence found elsewhere in the house basically brain matter um that said she had been killed there and then he moved her to look like the rest of the family and in one of the reports i read he said that he told his younger sister who was on the second floor she came to find out what was going on because she heard the gun and he told her it's mm-hmm. fine it's fine go back to bed you're fine so she just went back upstairs 
You would, though. You'd trust your big brother, wouldn't you? Yeah, it's like three o'clock in the morning. You're probably not very awake at this point. And you're like, okay. It's like people say, well, if a gunshot went off, it would wake me up. But I think my other half would probably sleep through it, especially by three o'clock in the morning when you're in a, you're generally in a deep sleep by then. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, it's just strange that the toxicology showed that there was no nothing in their system. Like It wasn't like that he drugged them up with his drugs and then shot them all. I mean, he was a drug addict. Could it have been he used something illegal that didn't necessarily show up on a tox screen back then? I and then this know. wasn't hundreds of years ago, but it, it's still you know, the 70s, 80s, so that was before yeah. toxicology was as good as it is now. I don't know. I think, I don't think he was concerned. I don't think he was clever enough to have thought it that far through. Because um, <laughs> I don't think he'd know what would show up and what wouldn't show up. All the stuff That's that he'd true. be able to get hold of would necessarily be stuff that wouldn't show up, even if he did know. Yeah. He was on, I mean, the list of drugs that they say he was on, lists go from cocaine, heroin, weed, literally anything he was having and we know that all of the stuff that he was taking did show up on top screens because part of the reason that they knew that he was a drug addict yeah so i don't know it's pretty sad though yeah so um, i read an account that said he was interviewed initially in a neighbor's house by the yes, police the next door neighbor they took the house and made it kind of like their center and that his grandfather t showed up and basically told him to stop wasting time and to tell the truth. He was to take responsibility. Yeah, and that's part of the Dawn story. And they mm. said that he, they, part of that story is that they say that his grandfather wanted him to just take responsibility and go away for the murder so that the story of the incest didn't get out. It's very, okay. like, even the, what happened in the murder is like so convoluted and there's so many different stories and accounts and every time he's interviewed he would change his story and or add something or take something out and it's never going to be 100% what happened you can only piece so together basically, the murders but you can't piece together actually what happened so basically what we're saying is we have 100 more questions and no answers yes okay sounds about right Fair enough once the Amityville horror today is a classic that we enjoy on dark nights and halloween and whether or not you believe the lutz's account what we have to remember is that six people lost their lives in horrific circumstances and that their lives deserve to be remembered more than a ghost story as always we would love to hear from you on social media tell us your thoughts about the hauntings and the murders as well and let us know what we should look into next as always take care of yourselves and each other